Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'd like to share with you some letters in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, which speak to the topic that Buzz and I were speaking about yesterday, which is the East Hamptons uh, superintendent, school superintendent candidate, Vito Perone, who was offered a job as superintendent. But then before the ink was put on the paper, well, he was fired, except you can't be fired if you weren't officially hired. But he was, in essence, fired. The job offer was rescinded. The original vote to hire him had been four to three. Uh, we don't know for certain what the vote is, although it's been reported four to three to rescind the offer. And this all stems from his having sent an email to two members of the uh, school committee with whom he was negotiating the contract. Ostensibly. Which, Ostensibly. Um, uh, in which he addressed them as ladies. Uh, and that was uh, termed by at least one of those two women as a microaggression, uh, a story which has now gone national. Uh, and local readers and some not-so-local readers uh, had plenty to say about this in letters published to uh, the letters to the editor in today's Gazette. Here's the one, here's the one that I thought probably wins the prize for best letter. Under the heading, Thought Story was April Fool's Day Joke. <laughs> Honestly, Gazette, you had me going. And then the story in the headline, which is how newspapers identify their previous stories, the story being East Hampton School Superintendent Job Offer Abruptly Rescinded April 1st. The letter then goes on. According to your story, the East Hampton School Committee sent a cop to roust Vito Perone out of bed after midnight so they could offer him a job. Then, during a spaghetti dinner fundraiser, they rescinded the offer because he had addressed two of them by emails as, quote, ladies. Then I noticed the date, April Fool's, April Fool's Day, hilarious, you killed. That letter from Christopher L. Miller of Granby. There are more, and I think that they are... Uh, on the whole, I would, and the Gazette does go out of its way to do this, representative of the letters they received, since it's unlikely they are printing all of them. So under the headline, meant no disrespect, this from Mark Frost in Florence. Back when I was growing up in the late 1950s and 60s, like Mr. Vito Perone, I was taught that the terms ladies and gentlemen were used as a way of showing, a res showing respect for a person. I don't understand why the East Hampton School Committee said it was microaggression, in quotes. What term would have been acceptable, question mark? The man meant no disrespect whatsoever. That's why I don't understand the superintendent job offer being rescinded. Can someone please explain? Well, an explanation came to the Gazette uh, from Imperial Beach, California. I think I'll have to take a look and find out exactly where Imperial Beach is. Orange County, California. Uh, Southern California. Yes. Uh, uh, Southern, yeah, south of L.A. Known for its, uh, let's be generous, conservative politics. Yep. Uh, very conservative politics. Uh, MAGA politics. Anyway, this, uh, I don't know anything about this writer, so let me be clear. I'm not uh, ascribing any particular political motives to him. Uh, the uh, him being Ronald Moody from Imperial Beach, California, under the heading, Superintendent Decision Tyrannical. When the vitriolic woke policies of the ultra-liberal left, well, maybe I did get the uh, uh, 
<laughs> characterization. I, I, smell it. I smell it faintly. Yeah, you get the characterization correct just by happenstance or by geography. When the vitriolic woke policies of the ultra-liberal left allow clear discrimination against qualified job applicants, as in the case of school superintendent candidate Vito Perone, then we truly have reverted to a fascist state where tyrannical speech police populate our children's schools with party members willing to bow to their every whim, tyranny at its worst. Well, well, I <laughs> guess we have heard from Orange Karn in California, I think. Just for clarification's yes. sake, Bill, this is Dan. Um, Southern California is, is pretty red, but actually in recent elections, it's been trending purple. So while it's home for to Nixon... In your Belinda and uh, sorry, my dad used to live there. That's why that's why I know the area of driving around. So, yeah, it's traditionally conservative, but mainly on like fiscal issues and things like that. But well, it's, I, I think so it was, I think it was a hotbed of the John Birch Society. It was. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. But it's changed a lot from that. A lot of Latinos have been moved. In. There's a lot of immigration. It's no longer as dark red, even though there is one individual who is clearly upset. And I think that's the point. Decision. It brought yeah. us Ronald Reagan, by the yeah. way. But, but uh, this is about this individual's view. Um, and at first blush, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to take on that language, but, uh, you know, the ultra-left, uh, whatever he just said, woke um, stuff. But it is... Vitriolic, woke policies of the ultra-liberal left. That is not the language I'm using here. What I am <laughs> saying, when I first heard this, I thought, what... The use of the term ladies, and I do understand my wife has corrected me and said she doesn't like the term ladies anymore, uh, along with a number of other corrections, which over the years I've, I've learned to learn. And I think that's the real point. But I got to think there's more to this story than this, quote unquote, microaggression. Right. And I, I think you guys, uh, Bill, you mentioned in the first story that they called the police at midnight to wake him up to tell him he got a job offer. That's a very strange interaction and conversation nobody calls the police to be like hey yeah we're offering somebody a job offer do you mind going down to his house and letting him know that at midnight as if he's supposed to be up all night waiting for the job offer or something that is a very strange story that you just read well that, um, there were letters news. to the editor not, not no that is true i also read that in mass live is confirmed at like 1206 a police officer was sent to his house to do a wellness check apparently it really wasn't a wellness check it was to offer him a job position it's like where's the daily hampshire gazette's coming down on this being like what really happened here what's the real story here of why a police officer would go to somebody's house at 1206 to be like did you know you got a job offer that that doesn't make any sense bill there's some other aspects of this story that don't make sense to me one of which is the lack of transparency from the school committee. Yeah. Apparently, this vote to rescind the offer, I think it's been reported that it was four to three, although that's not official, I don't believe. Uh, the vote to offer him the job, Vito Perón, the superintendent's job, was also four to three. What I would like to know is why was the meeting that uh, was held in the executive session, it was held in the executive session, the meeting of the school committee, to rescind the offer, why haven't we seen minutes of all that? Why haven't we at least seen a summary? I understand they can talk about personnel matters uh, in private, that is to close the meeting and go into executive session, and maybe this is that, I'm not sure. But the utter lack of transparency here is something that is deeply concerning, going to Buzz's point, which is, is there a deeper story here, which is raised by, if nothing else, by what the vote may or may not have been, four to three, three to four, Really? Let's hear the story. I think East Hampton 
owes not only the residents of the city an explanation, I think it owes everyone of Every one of us who are interested Yeah, just, just in to story. clarify, I know, Dan, you want to say something. I yeah. just want to throw in, if, if listeners don't know, and they probably do, that our open meeting law requirements uh, do have an exception for when you're discussing litigation or personnel matters. So whatever concerns there were or enthusiasm there was around this candidate, um, they talked about it in executive session. All of a sudden, we really want to know. Yeah, I just wanted to go back to the word ladies here, uh, since it was brought up by you, Buzz, uh, a little bit about it. Is, Don't blame me, No, Dan. I'm, not blaming, <laughs> I'm not blaming anybody. But I think there, there I'd like to blame issue. Buzz. Can okay. I blame <laughs> Buzz? <laughs> sure. Why not? But my concern about this is, okay, so we shouldn't be using that word. It could be construed as a microaggression. But there's so many more questions. If that's the, if that's the road we're going to take is, well, what other words? Should I be calling a, a woman madam? Because I've been heard that that's not nice because I'm aging them. It's like you're now beginning to begin to regulate speech and what is what is acceptable, what isn't, and who gets to decide that. And then next time I interact with somebody, do I take out the list and say, hold on, let me talk to you here for a second. Um, uh, hello, person. I, in, do you see where I'm going with this? This that's, is, that's this the, is the stuff fear that gives the far right. You know, it the, does. The whole woke. Um, I didn't need to use those words to describe it, but it is a concern by the way, not even people who would agree with that guy from Southern California believe in around here, but they say it to you privately. They're afraid to express these ideas publicly, and that's a concern for the culture, in my opinion, in Dan's opinion only. The question, it seemed to me, that was raised by uh, Vito Perone's use of the word ladies in an email is whether he was or is uh, not sufficiently attuned to uh, what could be deemed offensive to be the leader of the East Hampton schools. That's the question. And if this should have been used as a teachable moment or as a uh, way of involving the community in a discussion, uh, then it's not something that deserves the rescission of a job offer. It's just not. I, I, Bill, that's just so true. But it, especially if if the offense was that he was demonstrating somehow, his microaggression was he was demonstrating an ignorance of the need for the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, then somebody who makes a decision like, let's withdraw uh, this offer, uh, let's rescind this offer of employment, I don't think they're being very sensitive to diversity, equity, and inclusion by not just educating him on why it feels wrong to use the term ladies. It's, well, a, it's a moment that he could be educated. Intent matters in my book. Well, yes and no. Uh, there's an interesting letter. Let me share this one from the Gazette, which uh, uh, discusses that specific issue under the heading cringes at use of the word ladies. This by a letter from Jean uh, Shubmiel, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name, of Florence, and here's what that letter says. Hey guys, thanks for the interview. Really? Is that an acceptable professional way to address a salary negotiation when offered a job by men? I think not. If one did use the phrase, professionalism would pr absolutely be called into question. In this case of Vito Perone, it was pointed out that addressing a group of professional women as ladies was perceived as not just a lacking professionalism, but as a microaggression. 
I am sure that Mr. Prone's response of I didn't intend to insult anyone is absolutely true. When committing a microaggression, none of us intends harm. However, the letter goes on to say, it is the impact and not the intent that needs to be addressed. How does someone, especially a public figure and an educator, respond when a microaggression is pointed out? My hope is it would be taken as a learning opportunity so as to not offend or or insult in the future. In the case of Mr. Perone, to learn why he thought uh, uh, this would be an acceptable way to address professional women, that could be seen as otherwise. May I suggest, starting with a Google search on how long it has been since the use of ladies and gentlemen was considered an acceptable practice. Personally, I cringe when I hear the use of the word ladies in any setting, as I feel that it takes away all the respect that women fought for in the women's movement. The final paragraph says, quote, For me, this is not some new politically correct response, but a gut reaction that I have that dates back to growing up female in the 1960s and 70s. It comes from a fear of how many of the gains of the women's movement are being lost and the fear that my power as a woman could be dismissed. This includes the idea that, quote, ladies, end quote, could be brought back into professional use. I think that's a, a very good articulation, but I want to ask you, Bill, uh, at the risk of putting my uh, neck on the deck of the guillotine, what is a microaggression? I'm not sure I really know what it even is. Well, as I said to you yesterday, Buzz, I think it is a buzzword, um, and it incorporates, I think, specifically use of language that is viewed and perceived uh, and incorporated by uh, the listener as being uh, pejorative, as being insulting, as being rude, um, without any intent uh, from, the, from the speaker. Uh, there are all sorts of microaggressions, that is, both uh, actions and uh, verbalizations that hurt people um, because of their race or color, ethnicity, national origin, sexual uh, preference, gender identity, and so on. So I think that uh, I think, though, that the use of the word microaggression is like waving a red flag in front of uh, bulls in the arena because it is so fraught um, with, with potential uh, understanding and misunderstanding. And I think that if the school committee said, I just don't think that that use of those, that antiquated term as a... As a uh, uh, way of being familiar with uh, school committee members is very, uh, it, it, I don't think that it's an, it was enlightened, and I think it did call into question judgment. Um, but again, as far as I know, and no one has ever said anything to the contrary, there was not an inkling in this process that uh, the superintendent candidate Vito Prone was sexist in his administration of schools, in his teaching at schools, in his coaching at schools, not a hint of anything like that, in which case this would appear to be uh, an aberration, uh, not a reflection of who he is, and therefore why? A teachable why? moment. Uh, you know, the concern I have here, Bill, if I can just quickly add this is, okay, so some individuals are going to be offended by that term. Other individuals, let's just say also women, are not offended, have never brought this up to him. How would he know ahead of time not to use this term if it has never been brought up to his attention in the first place? I guess is my concern with it. It's like, how do you know the terms you've been using are no longer acceptable 
Is there a master list of this? Is, there, is it just some people are offended by it, some people aren't? It creates a level of no one can really know what words are acceptable and well, no longer acceptable. I, I, I think that it, it's it, informal. It, maybe it's unprofessional in some ways, but that has to be articulated back to the individual in order for the individual to make a correction. Well, I think there, the, the use of the word lady is fraught. I, I do really do believe that. The question is, is whether this offense uh, is of such a magnitude that the uh, job offer could, well, it could, or should be rescinded. And I have enormous questions about that because, again, the original vote to offer the job was four to three, and it only took one vote to rescind the offer. And I'm wondering if this isn't some expression of buyer's remorse, and this was an excuse not a reason. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants. Smell that bread, the baguettes, that New York rye. It's euphoria, bread euphoria, bakery and cafe. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Hear Howie at Broadside Books. Maybe you've read Howie's poems and reviews in Great River Review, Nimrod, Cutthroat, Off the Coast, or Nine Mile. Howie gets around. He jokes that he's an adjunct emeritus. He's taught creative writing at so many different colleges, a five-time Pushcart Prize nominee, lives in Florence, and volunteers at the Center for New Americans. At Broadside, Howie will read from his newly published volume of poetry, Stay, So Go. Hear Howie Feierstein read from Stay, Wednesday, April 12th at 7 at Broadside Books. Are you tired of living with chronic pain, knee pain, joint pain? Listen carefully, because now there are new regenerative treatments now available here. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, is now open, giving lasting relief to people with joint pain with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. Regenerative medicine uses highly concentrated healing agents from your own body. These powerful treatments can restore and repair damaged tissue in your achy joints so you can move again without pain. QC Kinetics has over 100 clinics nationwide wide and has treated thousands of patients with incredible success. Their advanced protocols are an exciting way to manage pain from arthritis and injury without surgery or steroids or pain pills. If you've got pain in your knees, shoulders, hip, or back, you need to check out these new treatments. They can actually help your body restore and repair itself. Call now to schedule your free consultation with the local medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we will be joined by the district attorney for the Northwestern District, Dave Sullivan, in just a few moments. There's another major story of national import, I think, that goes far beyond the uh, hiring or non-hiring of the superintendent of the East Hampton School, although I do think the East Hampton School... Uh, story is actually really interesting. And there's another letter uh, In, but, from the editor that I would really recommend uh, listeners take take a look at today's Gazette and the letter to the editor. You uh, said it was a national story, the East Hampton schools. It's actually international, Bill. Just wanted a slight correction there. The well, Daily Mail from the UK captured it. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's uh, 
I'm somewhat facetious as being an internationalist or a national story, but it actually is. It's uh, and uh, for those who like to see who is covering what, it was a pretty big attention grabber on Fox News. So let's look at the story that is front page news uh, in every newspaper today. Uh, the lead story in all the media, which is the indictment of Donald Trump, the people of the state of New York versus Donald Trump a criminal indictment with some 34 counts, all business uh, violations in the sense of there being uh, misreporting uh, and fraudulent reporting of what the payoff money to one doorman and to uh, one adult movie actor, uh, Stormy Daniels, and one playboy uh, of the year, uh, the two women... Uh, uh, alleged that they had um, sexual encounters with Donald Trump and then they were paid off uh, to remain silent just before the 2016 election. And after that, Donald Trump went through some extraordinary machinations, it is alleged, and I had read the indictment this morning, uh, that he went out of his way to concoct a cover-up so that the money that was paid to them uh, and to the uh, National Enquirer to kill the story, uh, all that would not come to light. And there were misrepresentation and fraudulent entries on tax returns and campaign finance reform forms and other uh, uh, administrative requirements. Uh, I think the uh, editorial, the op-ed piece actually, in today's New York Times by prosecutors saying it is a strong case is well worth reading because a lot of the reporting prior to the unsealing of the indictment said, oh, how are they ever going to prove all of this? It's piggybacking a federal election law offense on a state law violation, and it's the violation, uh, the false reporting when it's intended to further a second crime turns the misdemeanor into a felony, and that's going to be very complicated. How would juries ever wrap their minds around that? And there are now there are 34 counts, and we had been reporting between 20 and 30, 34 counts. Doesn't seem like a great case to be the first one to indict a former president of the United States. But this article this morning, this uh, column by the two prosecutors in the Times, explains why it is in fact a strong case, uh, and that there is a lot of corroboration, as John Pucci points out on this show, for what will come from Donald Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen. Um, but it's not his testimony that's crucial. It's the corroboration of the testimony. And there is a lot of it, including all of these monthly checks for a legal retainer uh, to his lawyer when the re legal retainer and the agreement didn't exist. It was just cover-up and falsification of what money that the money that Trump is funneling uh, to pay for the cover-up. Well, that's the cover-up. Well, there's there's a few things I want to say. Number one, speaking of John Pucci, John Pucci, uh, he said not only is are these indictments important on their own as indictments, but he felt that it was important because it breaks a logjam. There are roughly 31 cases uh, percolating against the former president, and um, this is the first one that actually went to indictment that he thinks is important. Number two, 
he predicted that there would be a speaking indictment, that is, that there would be a story told, not just accounts listed in the indictment. So anyone, you can just Google and look at the statement of facts, and you can actually read what Bill was just uh, talking about in articulation of exactly what it is that the Manhattan District Attorney felt was yeah, offensive. And, and to explain a bit of more about what John Kuchu was talking to us about yesterday, the so-called speaking indictment or talking indictment indictment that just doesn't list the charges but actually tells the story of why these charges are being brought, uh, which is not a requirement, and most of the time indictments do not have that kind of explanation. They simply say <clears throat> upon their oath the grand jurors of this county and this state present that uh, the following crime was committed. Uh, and without any, any additional information, and that's not, it's not required that it be bare bones like that. It's just the way it is usually done, almost always done. Just efficiency <clears throat> usually suggests. But need not be done. And in fact, in this document, there are the 34 counts that are very straightforward. Grand jury aforesaid by this indictment accuses the defendant of the crime of falsifying business records in the first degree in violation of penal law section 175. Point one zero committed as follows, and that it has a date when uh, the crime was committed, and there are many, many of them. But then attached to what we've called the speaking indictment are the statement of facts, which were attached by the district attorney to the indictment to explain what the underlying factual basis for the different counts, what the individual factual basis for the counts I can't remember if this sentence had a plural or a singular subject, is or are. <clears throat> Listen, the, uh, the other thing that I wanted to say is, is I've been asked twice since yesterday, and so I'd like to explain. A lot of people question why it is that there has to be an underlying offense under these business record offenses to ratchet them from a misdemeanor, a less serious crime, to a felony, a more serious crime under New York uh, law. And uh, so the analogy that I just want to draw is if I, I want to get a loan from the bank and I lie about my experience or my holdings or my investment prowess or something in order to get a loan. Well, getting a loan is not unlawful, but lying about it is fraudulent. And those misrepresentations are criminal, resulting in, in this case, in New York State, a misdemeanor. If, in fact, I'm doing it to further my, I, I want the loan so that I can buy equipment to rob the bank, to buy a getaway car and some weapons, then... It's a plot, and throughout this, this speaking indictment, the, the statement of facts that Bill was just alluding to, is the word scheme and plot. It, it's a plot. It's in furtherance of a criminal activity that you committed that fraud, and that ratchets it up to a felony. I wanted to ask both of you, since you're both lawyers, you both have read this uh, the indictment and the paperwork around it. Um, do you think it's a strong case? And I ask that because I was watching MSNBC and CNN was mainly I was flipping through it. And it seemed like there were a few individuals there who were contesting the the strength of the case against Donald Trump. Or is it just too hard to tell right now until more evidence comes out? I have to say it's too hard to tell until more evidence comes out. I mean, the question is, are there sufficient facts to, find, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty that he's guilty of the the statutes that he's alleged to have violated. That requires more information than I have. Well, 
We're going to be able to speculate on this until the jury finally speaks, and the word verdict comes from Latin, there, truth, and dictus, to speak, to speak the truth as to whether or not the charges are proven. There are 34 counts here. Um, for the prosecution to succeed, it does not need a conviction on 34 counts. Uh, the concern that I have with regard to trying this case, particularly as the first case uh, out of the gate to charge the former president, is whether or not this is going to be unduly confusing to a jury, because if a jury is confused, you have one crime, but then you have another crime, and did they prove both crimes beyond a reasonable doubt, and each element of both crimes beyond a reasonable doubt, because in order to get from the falsification of the business record, you also have to that, prove that that was in furtherance of another crime, uh, that is the uh, violation of campaign finance law or tax law and business reporting law and so on. So uh, it's, not in the, it's not in the district attorney's interest for this to be unduly complicated because if a jury is confused by the charges, then the charges will not have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And the language that the buzz was just giving, just giving us the uh, uh, having an abiding conviction to a moral certainty, that's the Massachusetts charge on what reasonable doubt means. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with the district attorney. Right Speaking after this. of district attorneys. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera announced she's prepared to use $1.2 million from the city's stabilization fund to cover a large portion of the $2.3 million shortfall in the FY 2024 Northampton Public Schools budget as part of a two-year plan to balance the school budget and return to strong fiscal principles. To put Northampton schools on a path to fiscal stability, the proposed budget will still require some cuts, which Shira said can be achieved mostly through attrition without a significant loss of staff or any existing programming. Amherst Town Councilors will pull $5 million from the $9.3 million in capital reserves account to offset some of the costs of building a new elementary school. The council met for over four hours on Monday before making the decision. The new $97.5 million elementary school will increase property taxes on homeowners if approved during a Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote on May 2nd. The council also directed town manager Paul Bockelman to try to find another $5 million in alternative funding for the project by the end of November. Two Northampton High School students won third place in a nationwide competition held by C-SPAN for a documentary they produced regarding domestic abuse in America. Jane Harrison Millman and Shira Sweet finished third in the U.S. East Division for their documentary, The Pain Within, Addressing Domestic Abuse in America. The six-minute documentary features clips of speeches by Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Al Gore, as well as interviews with local activists and state rep Lindsay Sabadosa. The students will receive $750 each for their win. Mostly cloudy today. The cool breeze is going to keep us in the mid to upper 40s for much of the day. Much up for a few scattered showers, patchy drizzle. Showers and drizzle continue tonight. Overnight low of 36 to 42. Mostly cloudy on Thursday with some scattered showers. Could be a thunderstorm in the afternoon. A high of 68 to 72. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El presidente Joe Biden se aventuró el lunes a los suburbios de Minneapolis para hablar sobre trabajos en fábricas y contrastar su agenda con el último tipo que tuvo este trabajo. El último tipo, como Biden llama a Donald Trump, aterrizaba simultáneamente en Nueva York para convertirse en el primer expresidente en ser arrestado. La Casa Blanca de Biden, que se ha negado a involucrarse en el espectáculo legal que rodea a Trump, esperaba convertir el momento de la pantalla dividida en una oportunidad para mostrar los logros del presidente y una administración relativa libre de dramas. Representó una repetición de la elección que los votantes hicieron en 2020 y que podrían tener que hacer nuevamente en 2024, ya que ambos hombres tienen la intención de buscar la Casa Blanca. Biden se ofreció a sí mismo como un formulador de políticas veterano, mientras que Trump, siempre el farandulero, pretendía utilizar la lectura de cargos del martes por cargos penales para generar donaciones de campaña y animar a los votantes republicanos. En otras informaciones y como parte del proyecto de arte público El Corazón de Holyoke, Nueva Esperanza y Yuma Summers han traído desde Puerto Rico a cuatro artistas parte del colectivo Moribibí, una colectiva de mujeres artistas visuales y activistas quienes están trabajando en un nuevo mural el cual se instalará en el Distrito Cultural puertorriqueño de Holyoke una vez esté completado a finales de abril. Durante el pasado fin de semana la comunidad se dio cita para pintar junto con las artistas diferentes secciones del mural y este martes 4 de abril, el colectivo Moribibí está invitando nuevamente a la comunidad a que participen de esta experiencia para pintar en conjunto los segmentos restantes de La Cultura es Poder desde las 3 y 30 de la tarde en Nueva Esperanza, ubicado en el 401 de la calle Main en South Holyoke. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we welcome back to our show the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, David Sullivan. Mr. District Attorney, sir. Uh, good morning, Bill. Good morning. Good morning, gentleman. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and call me your honor, too. <laughs> okay. So, your honor, um, what's your response? What are your impressions that you care to share with our listeners about the indictment of Donald Trump? Well, it was a very thorough investigation, and I think that the indictment that came out that included 34 felonies um, had some substance to it, and I think it was appropriate. They're treating him like any other citizen that commits a crime, that uh, he needs to go before the court, and he's going to get his day in court. He's presumed innocent, but... I think that the uh, district attorney did the right thing by the citizens of New York. It's not really just every or any citizen who commits a crime. You as district attorney, your assistant district attorneys, every day decide whether a charge should or shouldn't be brought and what charges should be brought if the person is going to be accused of some, uh, some violation of the criminal law. It's a discretionary matter. No one has to be indicted. It's up to the district attorney whether or not to seek an indictment. You say this one is justified. What? Yes, why? Uh, this decided the president of the United States. We realize how close the election was, and um, with all those crimes that are alleged, um, he became president of the United States. That's pretty substantive to me, that they changed the course of history by uh, the payoffs. So I think that he should be brought to justice. Although many of the counts here have to do with payments made 
while he was president. That is, he can, completes the payoff, but that those acts in and of themselves actually did not affect the election, which had already uh, happened. And, yeah. and certainly it, it impacted the, the course of his administration with, with these scandals not coming forward you know, right away. So. Oh, he received a benefit. There's yes. no question in my mind <laughs> yeah. about there's that. There's consideration there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, there's, uh, this, these were relationships with benefits. Oh, that's bad. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> but that said, that said I, I would be interested to know from you, Dave Sullivan, as the district attorney here, more about how the grand jury process works here in Hampshire and in Franklin counties. And you're the district attorney for both, Northwestern District being, I think, the only one in the state that has two counties. Is that right? Uh, also Cape Cod and the Islands. Oh, Cape Cod and the Islands. Yeah. Okay. And you know how much crime there is on Nantucket. <laughs> <laughs> Dukes <laughs> County. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Um, we've heard a lot about investigatory grand juries and accusatory grand juries. Can you tell us what the difference is and what happens in Franklin and Hampshire counties? Well, uh, just to kind of step back, uh, usually um, there has been uh, an arrest for the most part uh, so that uh, what we then look at is whether this merits going to superior court. So in district court, they handle the majority of crimes in the district, I would say 95% of the crimes. So we want to decide whether that is substantive enough to indict the person. And the way it works in, in both counties. Can I, can I interrupt yep. for one second? Yep. And there are some crimes that, for example, the district of court cannot hear because it doesn't have jurisdiction. Yeah, sole jurisdiction, like rape and murder, really serious uh, felonies. So it's got exclusive jurisdiction. So it has to be brought. Uh, but initially, it'll come into district court. Um, you know, sometimes uh, it, they're doing an investigation, so they don't really know whether um, it's going to go to court at all. I mean, many times, not I shouldn't say many times, but on occasion, um, people aren't indicted. They, they, they find no bill. So what the standard is for uh, the grand jury is probable cause. So in both uh, Hampshire and Franken, a uh, grand jury sits. Uh, it's a secret proceeding, and uh, they sit uh, for three months at a time, and uh, they'll hear whatever cases that we decide we want to present to that grand jury. Um, and these, let me make sure I understand. You, what you're saying is that there's a case brought in district court. Yes. For the and time. the superior court may have exclusive jurisdiction or concurrent jurisdiction with the district court. And you decide as an office, under your guidance and your direction, whether or not an indictment will be sought. Exactly. That's your call. Yeah. What I would like to know is how often... You use the term a true bill. That means there was an indictment as yes. opposed to no bill, which means yeah. no indictment. Yeah. Why? Because that language has been around for hundreds of years. And, well, the law just is a slow-moving beast when it comes to change sometimes. That said, how often does it occur that the district attorney presents a case to a grand jury and asks for an indictment but then doesn't receive it? Does that actually ever happen? say once every year, maybe once every two years. Because what we do is we spend a lot of time. That's why usually two months goes between when they're initially coming to the district court and when uh, we'll present it to the grand jury because we want to do as much investigation and as much thorough review as we can before we present it. So we don't want to present a case that's flimsy, so to speak, or that it, you know, a grand jury may find, hey, 
they had a, a really good defense, and we just don't think there's probable cause to go forward. You know, and probable cause is a very you know go standard as far as what's so let's it, go forward. And at a grand jury, the standard is probable cause. That is fifty percent plus a feather. Uh, more probable than not that it happened, or the other way it's phrased is enough evidence to show that a crime was committed by this right. person, a standard that's almost a non-standard. Uh, but with all of that, I, I would really like to understand better locally what happens, it, 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 juxtaposed to the axiom that uh, uh, you can indict a ham sandwich. Because yeah. if the DA wants to indict, you get an indictment. And not only is it not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it's just this uh, sufficient to indict, but it's not a unanimous grand jury. It's just by a majority, right? Correct. Um, we have smart grand jurors. They, they, they demand evidence. So we have to present uh, evidence. So um, we have police officers that come. We have documents that come in. Uh, we want to make sure that we can secure a conviction. In other words, what I want my prosecutors to do before they do an indictment memo asking you know, you know, whether they can present it to a grand jury, I asked them, you know, can you prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? So the standard for our office may not be for the grand jury is can we prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? One, one other quick point about grand juries. The standard is different than a trial jury. The uh, uh, unanimity is not, unanimity is not required. Yep. Um, and in addition to that, all the hearsay in the world is acceptable. A police officer can be called as your one witness and recite what everyone has said and what the investigation is, and that might be the only witness in front of the grand jury. And because all that hearsay is acceptable in a grand jury, that's enough to get an indictment, yes? Correct. You know, I, And one of the things is, uh, are we going to be able to secure these uh, witnesses um, for a trial? I mean, if somebody's died as a, a, a material witness... And that's the key to the case. We can't present that. We wouldn't be able to get a conviction if we lose that witness because they've either fled to another jurisdiction or um, you know, they're disabled, they're unable to testify. We, we wouldn't want to bring that. I want to change the subject a little bit, District Attorney David Sullivan, because I'm dying to ask you this question. You're the district attorney. You bring a case against a defendant. The defendant is a prominent person who then tweets uh, on his Twitter feed, a photograph of him holding a baseball bat in the direction of your head. His son mentions the judge and, and produces an image of the judge's daughter. Um, and the defendant goes into court, gets arraigned, and is admonished not to do such things, not to put people's uh, lives and safety in jeopardy by speaking out of court about the individuals who are involved in the case. And Subsequent to the arraignment, the person goes, calls a big rally, and said, and not only talks about the judge and his wife being anti-Trump, but also talks about the daughter being paid by the Biden, Kamala Harris administration, um, and therefore the judge is unbiased. What would you do if you were the district attorney in terms of requesting of that judge that he take any action? Kind of lost you on that uh, oh, did you? scenario, but right, he does exactly what the judge tells him not to do. And he, he, he says personal things about the judge's family and the district attorney being yeah, but, not but, fair. But we, we, should, we should note that the 
judge did not make an order yesterday, don't do this, don't say Correct. that. He's made a request, yes. and therefore they can't hold Trump in contempt because he hasn't violated a court order. Yeah. What it's, would you it's do called as a, a district order, attorney? You know, so I, I don't know if you could ever gag Tom, Donald Trump. That would be a very difficult task. Yeah, and would have all sorts of First Amendment implications. Yeah. Everyone who's pro, uh, pro-prosecution can speak, but if you want to defend Trump, then you can't. I mean, uh, th- there are a lot of rules yeah, about this. Yeah, wait a Draw the line. Does that mean you would do nothing? You wouldn't, like, ask the judge to do anything? You wouldn't, as a district attorney? Was there a threat? I think implicit is a threat, knowing that Uh, whatever Trump says, he's got followers who follow up on it, not necessarily to the letter of what he, well, look at January 6th. Yeah. It's, you know, did he incite the riot? Would he incite um, some type of uh, action violence? It's, It's a tough call. I mean, I'm, I'm affronted by it. I'm affronted by it. Yeah, well, you know, defendants shouldn't be, you know, grandstanding and trying to win in the public opinion. I think that's what he's always tried to do. So, um, but, you know, if there was a, we felt that it was a threat. And, um, you know, the judge, obviously, he could interpret it as a contempt of court, too. So it might be up to the judge. Judge might just say, hey, you, you violated the spirit of it. But I don't think it would prevail with the judge, let's face it that. I don't. You usually need a, a written gag order to. Yes, I I don't think that Trump is in any jeopardy with regard to that today. Could it happen as we get closer to the trial and the jury is being tainted, either by what the defense is saying or what the prosecution is saying? That's going to get dicier. But uh, I think there's been so much publicity. This jury pool is so infected, as any jury pool anywhere in the country would be, that it's hard to imagine that what's being said between now and trial is going to have a big influence on the jury pool. I mean, the jury pool, it's uh, very difficult to come up with. They may spend a week or two weeks just trying to get, come up with an impartial jury. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, the questionnaire that they'll have to fill out is going to be enormous. And the inquiry from the j- lawyers is going to be very intense. Mm-hmm. Dave Selvin, you have with us in, in the studio a very special guest we're going to talk to in just a moment. Why don't you introduce your friend? And colleague? Uh, my colleague is Kara McElhoon, and she is the executive director of the Child Advocacy Center. And this month is Child Abuse Awareness Month. So we will have the conversation, that conversation, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control about white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. 
Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Chess, Bach, Italian wine. What's going on? A look around the valley with provisions. The Peking acrobats swing from the seemingly impossible to the virtually unbelievable at UMass, Thursday, April 6th. Chess Wizards School Vacation Camp for grades one through five starts April 18th at Longmeadow's Greenwood Children's Center. Chinese music, old and new, at the Chinese Music Ensemble Spring Concert, Tuesday, April 25th at Smith College. It's free. Taste Barbera's, Nebbiolo's, and so many more at the Italian Wine Festival, April 22nd at Provisions Mill District. Box, Mass, and B Minor is the centerpiece of the Bach Festival and Symposium at UMass, April 21st through the 23rd. This is Jim Neal with What's Going On, a monthly look around at food and beverage, arts and music, and anything cool. What's Going On is presented by Provisions, wine, beer, cheese. Free tastings Friday, 4 to 7, at the foot of Crafts Avenue in downtown Northampton, in the Mill District in North Amherst, and at the Longmeadow Shops. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Joining Buzz and me and the district attorney is Kara McElhone, who is the executive director of the Child Advocacy Center for Hampshire County. She is with us and the DA today because this is Child Abuse Awareness Month and there are events in Hampshire County we want to know, want you to know about and we want you to know more about uh, child abuse here in Franklin and Hampshire County. So uh, you're the executive director of the Child Advocacy Center. For those of our listeners who don't know, what is the Child Advocacy Center? Hi, thanks so much. Yeah, the Child Advocacy Center is a location here in Northampton where we bring a, an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team together to respond to allegations of child abuse. So that team consists of folks from the DA's office, um, DCF, law enforcement, we have a pediatric sexual assault nurse on staff, and we have a mental health care providers, as well as advocates who help kids navigate this disclosure and heal from the trauma they've endured. You work closely with the district attorney's office? We are proud to do so, yes. And, but you're an independent organization. You're we, not part of the DA's office. We are not. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Okay. who work across with all of these different agencies. Okay, so tell us about what the events are that are happening here uh, with regard to Child Abuse Awareness Month. Sure. Um, our, our big event is going to be Friday evening at 5.30 p.m. at Child's Park. We're hosting This Little Light of Mine. Uh, this is the third annual Community Luminaria, which, um, w in which we'll put out 2,400 lights at the park and at the homes and businesses of sponsors, as well as at the Hampshire Courthouse. And those 2,400 lights represent the 2,400 kids we've served. Over what period of time? 
that's since we've moved into our facility in 2006 in um, Northampton. So it's about 15 years. 2,400 kids who've received services, including, well, describe what they briefly, if you would, for us, please. Sure. What they, kind of services? They receive advocacy services. They receive, they, we have forensic interviews on site for kids. They receive medical care. They receive therapy. Um, you know, sort of the, everything a child will need when they have disclosed this kind of abuse to help them make sure they're safe and to make sure that they get justice and, and begin to heal because, you know, we know that the kids need to heal in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again to them. In terms of child abuse here in Franklin County and Hampshire County, is there a difference? Is it lesser or is there more of it? How does it compare to national and statewide averages? You know, there's child abuse in every community. We, we would love to say that child abuse didn't happen here in our, you know, our lovely Hampshire County, but unfortunately, it happens everywhere. Statistically, one in four girls and one in six boys are sexually abused before they turn 18 years old. And we also know that, one in, that only one in 10 children ever report it. So, you know, what we're seeing is an, certainly an increase of reports, um, which indicates that, you know, the kids need more help and the community needs to step up. And they can contact you where? At cachampshire.org or at 413-570-5989. Carol McElhone, thank you so very much for being with us today. And District Attorney Dave Sullivan, you too. Great pleasure to see you. Both. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Monica Ricks in New York. Missouri Highway Patrol has confirmed a tornado touchdown early this morning in Bullinger County near Jackson, killing multiple people. There's also widespread damage there. KFVS reporter Jeffrey Bullard. I did have a chance to speak to one of the families who who felt the blast of of the tornado come through. All they all they heard and felt was wind. They got inside their bathtub. The girl's boyfriend then got a mattress on top of them. And the next thing you know, they're coming out of their house. And she says all they see is debris. Former President Trump is now calling for Republicans to defund the Justice Department and the FBI until they come to their senses. He posted that to Truth Social this morning, but it's a similar message he delivered to supporters last night in Florida following his arraignment in New York. Trump's lawyer, Joe Takapina, also defended him on CBS Mornings. There's been no violation of FEC laws, so I don't know what crimes we're talking about exactly, John. 
But is fal falsifying business records just as a matter of course is not a legal thing to do. And you're saying there was no business records of any kind, whether it's taxes or otherwise, nothing was falsified ever at all. No, not only was nothing falsified, but nothing was filed. Trump's trial could happen in January. <laughs> More clashes in Jerusalem, where at least 14 Palestinians have been injured and hundreds arrested in an Israeli police raid on a mosque. CBS's Charlie Daggett has details. It triggered a retaliation from Palestinian Hamas militants in Gaza. Footage showed a number of incoming rockets intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome defense system. The Israeli Air Force responded with airstrikes on Hamas military sites. Here at home, another state's passed legislation focused on transgender people. CBS's Jim Kersula. A measure that would block transgender people from using public bathrooms associated with their gender identities has cleared the Republican-controlled legislature in Kansas. Seven other states have enacted laws banning transgender students from using school bathrooms and locker rooms associated with their gender identities. New baseball rules seem to be working. CBS's Steve Kathan says a nine-inning game last night finished in less than two hours. The Marlins and Twins in a game without much offense. Birdie's got it, steps on the bag, throws to first, a double play! The 1-0 Marlins win in Miami, a game that took just an hour, 57 minutes to play, shortest of the season so far. That's thanks to a new pitch clock that's cutting down those game times. This is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. My spaniel sailor arrives each afternoon for his walk in the steep woods. And usually in the spring, we return with plenty of tales of spotted white-tailed deer and a stream-soaked coat of wet hair. Eden Pure Thunderstorm's air purifier that uses proven oxy technology to the rescue. I plug the compact unit into the wall and let Sailor relax in the freshening air. And the unit comes with a six-foot USB cord for when we travel. There are over 300,000 units already sold. There are no filters to buy over and over again. Right now, you can save $200 on an Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack for whole home protection. You get three units for under $200 for the kitchen, the basement, the fireplace room, the mudroom, anywhere you need clean-smelling air. Go to EdenPureDeals.com and put in discount code JOHN, J-O-H-N, to save $200. That's EdenPureDeals.com, discount code JOHN. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton School Committee met last night for the first time since Dr. Vito Perone's offer to become superintendent was revoked after he referred to women as ladies in an email. More than 300 people tried to join the virtual meeting, crashing the website. Several members of the public shouted insults at the school committee and demanded the meeting allow for more people to join. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle shut the meeting down after getting input from legal counsel, saying everyone who wants to attend a meeting must be allowed, and therefore the meeting could not proceed with so many attempting to join the Zoom call. La Chappelle says another will be set up with a 1,200-person limit, but they would need a 48-hour notice to do that. Water and sewer rates are going up for the average homeowner in Northampton. The city is expected to raise base water rates by 210%, as well as a new sewer rate, to make up for lost revenue due to the Coca-Cola bottling plant shutting down. Mayor Gina louise Sheriff spoke at a city council meeting, saying they are working with state partners to assist with this very big loss. The increases would take effect July 1st.
Several students from Orange's Dexter Park Elementary School were brought to the Athol and Haywood hospitals after coming into contact with a pepper gum that a student allegedly bought online and brought to school. The levels of pepper in the gum reportedly gave students digestive issues and skin reactions. The Orange Fire Department declared the event a mass casualty incident as there were more patients than resources available, bringing in additional ambulances from Northfield, Phillipstead, and Turner's Falls. Mostly cloudy today. The cool breeze is going to keep us in the mid to upper 40s. There may even be some places in Franklin County that don't get out of the low 40s. Watch out for a few scattered showers, patchy drizzle. Showers and drizzle continue tonight. Overnight low of 36 to 42. Mostly cloudy on Thursday with some scattered showers. Could be a thunderstorm in the afternoon. A high of 68 to 72. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to our show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are really pleased to have with us Dr. Jonathan Bayou to talk about an important case that yet again is coming out of Texas. Hello, doctor. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. I guess the best way to set the table for this conversation is to point out that this federal judge, whose name is Reed O'Connor from the Federal District of the Northern District of Texas. Uh, he once declared the Affordable Care Act, what people refer to as Obamacare, to be unconstitutional on its face and that Congress did not have the right to implement it. He has now ruled last week that the Biden administration can't enforce a provision of that law that provides patients with um, certain... Uh, types of free preventative care, including screenings for cancer um, and depression and HIV and uh, everything from pap smears to uh, perhaps even mammograms and tobacco cessation services. So um, it is a uh, ruling that I'm sure the Biden administration intends to appeal in a timely way. You are Jonathan Bayuk, you are part of the Bay State system, and we've had you on the show numerous times to um, instruct us about immunology and the COVID-19 uh, controversy. But when you first, um, some years ago, you were part of what's called an accountable care organization, which I think gives you an experience uh, to look at this ruling and to instruct us about it. Could you start by telling us what is an accountable care organization and what is your experience? Sure. So an accountable care organization is <clears throat> a bunch of healthcare providers and it, it's everything that it can encompass that with, with some exceptions, not necessarily dentistry, but everything else, mental health, primary care, specialty care, hospital care, that sort of thing. And the, it's a group of all those different providers that fall under an accountable care organization, which has an administration that helps manage costs for the whole system as well as improve quality. So there's two mandates that an ACO, an accountable care organization has, which is improve quality and also try to save money to make it as efficient as possible. And my, my involvement with that is I was part of a company that created ACOs across the country. I was also as a physician in an ACO, and I still am, actually several because I'm a specialty provider and you can be in multiple different ACOs as a specialist. And so I used to help develop these types of things and was very involved with the implementation of the Obamacare or the Accountable Care Act uh, regulations throughout those ACOs. 
So the uh, Affordable Care Act um, requires that insurers uh, provide uh, coverage for certain uh, preventive care, as I mentioned before, everything from screenings for cancer to tobacco cessation services. There was a complaint. The plaintiffs in this case said that it is unconstitutional for these private insurance companies to be told by the government that they have to provide certain services pursuant to their policies. Um, so what, thinking about your experience as an accountable care organization um, originator and as a physician who provides services, what are your thoughts about this judge's ruling and its implications? So <clears throat> clearly not a lawyer. Uh, not under, I, I do understand that the, the basis of the complaint is that because the president did not appoint the committee or the commission that came up with the recommendations or, and or the Senate did not confirm them, that is the basis of the judge's decision. I do not know if that will stand up and not in, you know, in appeal or whatever. But um, I think it's really sad because it doesn't serve the public good. And not to get into original, you know, originalist constitutional stuff or not, but we, our population and our needs are very different than they were when the formation of the constitution occurred. And certainly primary and preventive care wasn't something that people thought about and all back then. So anyway, that, that I, I let you, you're, the, you're an attorney, so I'll let you talk to that issue. As far as the implications, it's, it's, it's bad, you know, because there are not so much in our area because we have a state that has its own sort of provisions for this sort of thing. But there are many states like Texas that there are people who are going to need those services. And if you don't provide preventative care and people don't have the money to pay for it, they won't get it in large, you know, in large part. And then you'll have people who have late stage breast cancer and late stage colon cancer and those types of things. And those can be absolutely devastating and for the, for the person and also very expensive. Uh, Doctor, this is Bill Newman. I appreciate your being with us. Do you see this as, and do you experience this as a assault on uh, individuals who really cannot afford uh, health care without, without government assistance? I mean, we're in the midst of, among other things, some 15 million people who could lose their Medicaid coverage over the next few months as the pandemic-related emergency provisions come to an end. Do you see this uh, uh, ruling out of Texas as being part of a bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, it's quite clear that the direction that some of these very conservative, or whatever the term you wanna use for these, these states, all they're very angry and they don't care about the actual care of their population. So yeah, it's an it's an assault, you know. And but you know, so I guess the real question is: Is healthcare a right, or is it a privilege? And I think that that comes down to the basis of how we want to live as a people. In good societies, we take care of the least of us, and we take care of our population because it doesn't serve the population to have sick, you know, people who are suffering. First, it's just cruel, but also at the end of the day, those people just flow into hospitals which have a mandate that they have to take care of them and it doesn't actually save any money all it does is create chaos and you know i understand that people want to be able to do what they want when they want to do it but sometimes things make sense like seatbelts make sense because they save lives and save money healthcare preventative healthcare especially do the same 
So to take this provision away and allow insurance companies, which really only care about making money, that's what they do, uh, then that gives them an opportunity to increase their bottom line at, at the expense of the people that have coverage or do not have coverage. By way of disclosure, I have not read either the complaint that gave rise to this case or the judge's ruling. I've read the reports about this case, including the one in the New York Times. And uh, the lead plaintiff in this case is uh, Braidwood Management. The company's owner is Stephen Holtz. He's a well-known Republican donor. The example that the plaintiff, he's the plaintiff, singled out that motivated, I think, in part this ruling, is they used the example of HIV AIDS drugs and said that it's a violation of people's religious freedom for uh, the insurers to have to cover the cost um, of drugs to prevent HIV and AIDS. Um, as a physician, how does that strike you? I mean, um, is uh, because I, I, I don't know, as a citizen who's not a physician, it preventing HIV and AIDS saves a lot of money. And I think it's an important drug to be able to get out there. What do you think, especially as an immunologist? I mean, I I think it's ridiculous. It's just, it, you know, the this whole argument about religious freedom is, 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 is and I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I celebrate Christmas and Easter, and I, I'm a faithful person. But that does not mean, and part of being a Christian is that you, you know, you love your neighbor and you, and you take care of each other and you, do, you don't judge. And that's like the, the core of Christianity. So, you know, you can get into hours and weeks and months of discussion about about this stuff but the bottom line is, is our country is is as much as people may think it's a christian country it's not we we are not a society that is that is based off one religion we're not and so i find that argument to be ridiculous because there are a lot of people in this country who aren't and do share to have different beliefs and have you know that doesn't mean that we should all not be able to do what we what violates somebody else's belief the, the greater good you know the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one and in, in this case, you know, preventing just because in, in, in HIV prevention doesn't mean that you're necessarily violating any religious beliefs. It's a disease. It's a virus. It doesn't care anything about who you are or what you believe in. It makes you sick. And if you don't treat it, you die. So I think it's ridiculous. And I think that as a physician, it doesn't make any sense. And, if, in, and as a Christian, I think it also is ridiculous. Doctor, I'd like to know your experience with regard to preventive care and what you experience when you see someone and your reaction is this could have been prevented. It should have been prevented. How does that affect you both personally and as a physician? Well, it's extremely frustrating when you come into a situation and you see something that could have easily been prevented. And unfortunately, it happens more often than you think it might. Whereas someone is going to a provider or a set of providers, and this, the way the system is now, it's fractured, it's broken, the, the, the communication is difficult. It's better in some areas than others, you know, but it is not, it's not uniformly great. And so that's hugely disappointing. And that's happened to me in my practice several times where I see somebody who comes in with a complaint. I recognize it. I'm also an internist as well as an allergist and an immunologist. And figure out that they had esophageal cancer and it really wasn't, you know, food allergy or whatever, and it could have easily been prevented. So that's very frustrating, both personally and professionally. Is it in the interest of the insurance companies 
or is this short-sighted on their on their because when someone gets sick with a disease that could have been prevented they end up paying for hospital visits for drugs for long-term care for all sorts of things why do yeah. they take such this view that we don't want to pay for preventive medicine i don't get it well let's not i don't think we're there yet right because the insurance companies haven't taken any action so this is a judge who sounds like he's a bit of a political activist on a bench who is hearing from a case of a, also a not an insurance company, my understanding, um, about a, a conceptual idea about what something is or is not constitutional. It is in the insurance company's best interest to cover preventative care for the reasons you just said. Because once somebody gets sick, the cost of their care goes through the roof. If you can prevent it through a colonoscopy to remove a precancerous polyp, problem solved. If they have colon cancer, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost, morbidity, and potentially mortality. So, and, and that the example goes on and on, whether it's pap smears or tobacco cessation, all of those things are primary prevention in order to not have a more serious condition, which is much more expensive and not in the interest of the insurance company. Yeah, apropos to what you were, were saying, the Matt Isles is the president and the chief executive of the of a major trade group for insurers, the AHIP insurance providers. And he said in a statement, we want to be clear. He's talking about why there shouldn't be an appeal by the Biden administration. He said, Americans should have peace of mind. There will be no immediate disruption in care or coverage. And the truth is, we all know that what happens is before in most states, certainly in Massachusetts, before they can change coverage, they have to go through a process to say what it is that their coverage is going to be, and they have to have, give the opportunity for people to have input to our insurance commission, and I think that of most states. So it, it's I find it very disingenuous. Clearly, I think if allowed, insurers are going to they're in the they're a risk management entity in the business of uh, making sure that they. Uh, are going to make as much money as possible. So they'll get, we'll get the coverage uh, that's profitable for insurers, not that we need in order to prevent our illness, I think. And I just had to throw my two cents in there to what you were saying in agreement with what you were saying. But um, for one, as an attorney who's worked with insurers, I don't have a profound level of trust that they're going to do what's in the public interest. Oh, oh, I wasn't saying that they would. I'm saying it's not in their best interest uh, long term. But you're absolutely right. They look at the bottom line and depending on who's which insurance company and, and which, you know, as the president of the Mass Allergy Society for many years, I used to meet with most of the major payers to discuss about what they were going to cover and how much they were going to reimburse this or that within allergy and ear, nose and throat. And some of the decisions that they made were absolutely crazy. But, you know, and sometimes I was able, along with um, my colleague, who's another allergist, uh, we were able to convince them that their decision was wrong. And once in a while, we were able to be successful. But you're absolutely right. You know, you cannot trust any corporation that is there to make money to make decisions that aren't, that aren't you know, particularly helpful. And, and sometimes they just make mistakes and, and they are a money-making entity. And I, I, have no, I also feel the same way. I have no faith or trust in insurance companies. You can trust them as far as you can throw them. <laughs> well, Dr. Jonathan Baik, I, I'm so grateful. Every time you take time out of your, you're one of the busiest people I know, and every time you take time out to speak with us and educate us, we really appreciate it. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a great day, Dr. Jonathan Baik. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back.
more Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Did you know that right here in Western Mass, there are communities where most kids don't even own a single book? That's why the Northampton Radio Group stations are teaming up with Reader to Reader in Amherst. On Saturday, April 15th, the Book Bus is pulling up to our studios at 15 Hampton Avenue in downtown Northampton to collect used or new children's books for any age, from toddlers to teenagers. See what's hiding in your closet or your attic or your basement and bring some beloved old books, a bag, a box, to the Book Bus from 10 to noon on Saturday, April 15th. These books are going to kids right down the river in Springfield. So join Reader to Reader and the Northampton Radio Group for the Book Bus, Saturday, April 15th from 10 to noon on Hampton Avenue in Northampton. Made possible with support from UMass 5 College Federal Credit Union, where you can also drop off books at their Northampton and Hadley branches if you can't make it on the 15th, and by USA Waste and Recycling. The Book Bus, this is what a revolution looks like and reads like. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford, Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. Bill, um, Josh Silver, uh, the last two times he's joined us, talked about the importance of the Wisconsin Supreme Court case. Um, we, election. I mean, election, excuse me. I was just looking at my notes and I saw the word case. Um, that in that the uh, a, a former Supreme Court uh, judge who was a Republican who um, had previously voted in favor of what we believe is gerrymandered districts and who wanted a complete ban on abortion for Wisconsin lost to Janet Protasiewicz. Um, I looked up how to pronounce that um, this morning. And Janet Protasiewicz, the Democrat, the characterizes a quote unquote liberal. Um, won by uh, 55 to 45 percent with about 95 percent of the vote already counted. Um, this election having been yesterday. Correct. And people are saying that um, it's a very important election, which Josh Silver felt that it is. He feels that Wisconsin, which um, has a Republican legislature uh, and congressional districts, six of their eight congresspeople are Republican, Two are Democrats, and that some are saying if uh, if Janet Protasiewicz wins, that she is almost certain to be the swing vote reversing Wisconsin's abortion ban, which the legislature imposed, and ending the use of those gerrymandered districts. And it could 
shift the power in Congress if, in fact, those uh, Republicans are replaced with Democrats as elected representatives of Wisconsin. Your thoughts, Bill? Well, it is no surprise that this has received national uh, national attention. Wisconsin is a swing state. It's an important state, and it has spoken loudly as to where its priorities are. 55 percent, 55.5% of the vote to Janet Protasiewicz, to 44.5% to Daniel Kelly. Uh, Kelly was really clear, anti-abortion, pro-gerrymandering, pro-Trump. Uh, no no uh, subtlety in this race. Uh, anti-abortion, and that's where he would rule. Uh, I do think that there are some lessons here that are encouraging uh, in a day and when we could use some encouragement if you are concerned about the future of democracy. First of all, gerrymandering, which has been blessed by this right-wing Supreme Court, uh, still has some opposition in state courts. And Wisconsin uh, is one of those states where gerrymandering still is to be decided by the state state Supreme Court. And this was an election to the state Supreme Court. I think that that is important to see that the voters, when fit, given a choice, someone who's a jurist or someone who's a Trumpista, they choose the jurist. I also think that there is an important lesson here in terms of abortion politics, because where abortion has been a significant issue, the anti-choice candidate or question on the referendum ballot, uh, the anti-choice people have lost. And the, and the people who are in favor of reproductive choice um, and support the right of a woman to choose to have an abortion or to not have an abortion, but it's an individual right. That side has won ever since uh, the Supreme Court decided that it would try to uh, make America in its religious and political image. So I think this is a very important race because it shows in this Midwestern state that, in fact, progressive values can still win. It also, the gerrymandering question, and of course we're talking about uh, when the court gets involved in gerrymandering, it's, it's, it's uh, taking a look at the manner in which districts are drawn. How do we decide how to divide up the population when we're drawing districts? Well, it's not the we. It's politicians choosing their voters as opposed to voters choosing their elected officials. And that's my point, is that in, in this particular case, it's estimated, according to Pew, that I saw two different uh, surveys, two different reports, but approximately 51% of uh, Democrats and independents who lean towards Democrats are 51% of the voting uh, registered voters. And for Republicans, it's a total of uh, under 40%. And some independents are, uh, don't declare which way they would vote, don't identify with a particular party. 51% yet out of the eight Congress people, six of them are Republicans. Two of them are Democrats, even though more than 50% of the population says, I feel I'm Democratic. Uh, that is a real problem when the courts are confronted with how you draw districts. That's what they're talking about. How do you fairly reflect what people really want in a representative democracy? Pretty important. Well, the issue is, I think, fraught because the United States Supreme Court has ruled that partisan gerrymandering does not offend the Constitution. It was a close vote, 
But this Supreme Court voted to say, gerrymandering, nothing we can do about it, nothing we will do about it. And so the Republicans, which have gerrymandered uh, to an extraordinary degree because they control more states than the Democrats, and the Democrats would do this, and they tried to do it in New York, uh, and they were thrown out of the state court who said that gerrymandering is unconstitutional, illegal under New York law. The Republicans did it in Florida, and the courts in Florida said, eh, no problem here. So it is important what happens in state courts. Gerrymandering is an issue that can still be decided in state courts, notwithstanding the Supreme Court says, ah, we can't do anything about it. Those Republicans are going to select uh, their voters and are going to draw lines to make our elections undemocratic. Ah, we can't do anything about it. We're only the Supreme Court. And, and it's because the Supreme Court said just that, which is up to the states. We're not going to decide that. It's up to the states to determine how they draw their own districts. And that's why this election is so important, because here's a situation in which one said, I like the way it is now, and the other uh, candidate said, no, we have to make sure districts are drawn in a fairer way, and she's the one who won. Right. Whether or not it's gerrymandering or reproductive choice that motivated the voters, uh, that will that's something that will be debated and it will be analyzed in coming days and weeks. But uh, clearly, the progressive won. I have another question here for the two legal minds in the studio. Um in Wisconsin, Supreme Court justices are elected. Massachusetts, it's not like this. Do you have a, an idea, a feeling about which model is better? I think the politicalization of uh, court cases has reached a new height, but it's not new. Many, many states have elect judges, particularly uh, to the highest courts in the state. So... Uh, we can complain and say, well, look at this rabid politicalization, but it's not a new phenomenon. What is new is the intensity and the uh, bare-knuckle fighting that goes on. Uh, there was no pretending in this case that I'm just going to be a jurist. I mean, even John Roberts in his confirmation hearing said, I'm just going to be a judge who calls him as I see him, balls and strikes. I don't have an ideology. I don't have a political agenda. None of that is true. But at least people used to give lip service to that idea and sometimes would follow it. It was an aspiration. The answer to your question, Dan, in my opinion, mm. it's a horrible idea to, as Bill said, politicize it by having elections. You, you want jurists who can uh, look not at what's popular because quite often what's popular is, in fact, going to hurt people or it's contrary to constitutional principles or otherwise just a bad idea. Mm. Pop, popular things should not motivate courts. But courts it's still should be looking at the rule of law. It's political whether it's appointed or elected. Let's get real here. Although I mean, in a slight defense of Roberts, it was his vote that saved Obamacare, right? It I was. Mean, that was. So I, not that I'm a big fan at all. I'm not. But he did have that one yeah, wrinkle. He said Congress can tax. Yes, which has been established long ago. It wasn't a radical move at all. But it's – I'm not defending Roberts, but, you know. Right. And, and uh, he can't control his court anymore because – there are five yeah, judges, yeah. even to the right of okay. John Roberts, who oh, we yeah. would think would have thought was impossible. Yeah. But I just. And he was rabid. I mean, this is George Bush appointee. He supported the 2000 basically takeover by the Republicans uh, to get George W. Bush elected and that recount vote. This guy was a, inside the trenches, warrior for the conservative movement. I so, want to make this yeah. one last point. When nominees to the Supreme Court are made, 
as recent history has demonstrated beyond any question, those are political appointments. It's still a political process. One is more overtly political, their elections. One is, uh, well, overtly political because it happens. And is there, within, a, is there a term? I'm sorry to ask for the Supreme uh, for the term, state, lim- term limits term, for Wisconsin. Yeah, there is a term for the judge, judges. Judges? I'll, I'll take, okay. Take it's look. like a couple years. Okay. Uh, it's, well, let's find out, and we'll give you that information right on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera announced she's prepared to use $1.2 million from the city's stabilization fund to cover a large portion of the $2.3 million shortfall in the FY 2024 Northampton Public Schools budget as part of a two-year plan to balance the school budget and return to strong fiscal principles. To put Northampton schools on a path to fiscal stability, the proposed budget will still require some cuts, which Shara said can be achieved mostly through attrition without a significant loss of staff or any existing programming. Amherst Town Councilors will pull $5 million from the $9.3 million in capital reserves account to offset some of the costs of building a new elementary school. The council met for over four hours on Monday before making the decision. The new $97.5 million elementary school will increase property taxes on homeowners if approved during a Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote on May 2nd. The council also directed town manager Paul Bockelman to try to find another $5 million in alternative funding for the project by the end of November. Two Northampton High School students won third place in a nationwide competition held by C-SPAN for a documentary they produced regarding domestic abuse in America. Jane Harrison Millman and Shira Sweet finished third in the U.S. East Division for their documentary, The Pain Within, Addressing Domestic Abuse in America. The six-minute documentary features clips of speeches by Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Al Gore, as well as interviews with local activists and state rep Lindsay Sabadosa. The students will receive $750 each for their win. Mostly cloudy today. The cool breeze is going to keep us in the mid to upper 40s for much of the day. Watch out for a few scattered showers, patchy drizzle. Showers and drizzle continue tonight. Overnight low of 36 to 42. Mostly cloudy on Thursday with some scattered showers. Could be a thunderstorm in the afternoon. A high of 68 to 72. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101-5-1400-1240-WHMP. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits. On the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market 
every day of the year. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarWrite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. At the end of the last segment, we have been talk, had been talking about the Wisconsin Supreme Court election in which uh, Janet, uh, Janet Petoskowitz won 55.5 to 44.5 over her Republican opponent. We raised the issue, Dan raised the issue, how long are the Wisconsin Supreme Court terms? The answer is they are for 10 years and there is no term limits one election per year, uh, no more than that. So we have with us— And I just, I just want to say, what we didn't mention is that it's the most expensive race, state race. is $40 million put into this race. And for those of us, uh, by way of admission, uh, I sent a few dollars myself to make sure that she was elected. I just want to congratulate her and congratulate the people of Wisconsin. And the majority of Wisconsin got to express themselves for— uh, 55%. And a progressive got elected mayor of Chicago. I think his name is Brandon Johnson. I think we should just all recognize that as well. That was in the city of Chicago, uh, kind of a progressive uh, Cook County um, uh, individual progressive who got elected out of Chicago and beat the more conservative uh, centrist Democrat. Notwithstanding a very, very intense law and order campaign. Uh, run yes. run against him yeah. and, and a and lot of and a, and a lot of crime with a lot of publicity in yep. Chicago. Yep. Maybe April showers will bring May flowers. Very, very excited. There's another story that uh, actually I love this story. There is a new college of Florida you may have heard about recently. They've been in the news nationally and certainly locally here in uh, the Pioneer Valley in the Hilltowns recently. The uh, new college of Florida was part of the University of Florida complex apparently when it was founded in the 60s it broke away and gained independence in 2001 when it became an independent of the university of florida on january 6 uh, florida governor ron DeSantis decided that it was a good idea to appoint i believe six new members of the board of trustees of the new car college of florida meaning that there was a uh, now a majority that governor DeSantis had which wants to change the direction of the curriculum the education of teaching and learning at this private sarasota institution the focus of the institution on diversity equity and inclusion dea dei as they say um is particularly offensive ron DeSantis announced in the news conference when he appointed these six new members of the board of trustees he feels that uh, aspiration for diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, is damaging to the educational interests of the enrollees in the, uh, in the new College of Florida. Well, we are, I am very proud of our local terrific uh, institution, which is a jewel here that we have in this region at Hampshire College. We have the president of Hampshire College, Ed Wiggenbach, writes with us right here in studio. So, hello, Ed. Hello. Mr. President, what have you done with regard to this new college of Florida? 
Well, New College is a, a institution that's very similar to Hampshire. It was oriented, it was founded to be a progressive institution where students define their own course of study, where they uh, receive a narrative evaluation, so they're actually getting you know authentic feedback on their work, and they do really serious projects. So they they're kind of a sibling or a peer institution to places like Hampshire or uh, Antioch, where Bill has some has some relationships or. Um, and a diploma. And a diploma, exactly. <laughs> which, so, which, 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 in my, which in my entering class was not that high a percentage of us. <laughs> so, you know, there's this idea of, a pl- of places like Hampshire. That and when you it. say like Hampshire, I, I, I'll never forget what you said when the first time I met you here on radio. And you said, well, what we try to do is uh, have a really serious curriculum that reflects really good values. Right. I loved when you said that. And so we're talking about the new college having a similar orientation. Exactly. And it's a place where students went to New College because they wanted to be in a supportive, progressive environment that allows them to define their own education, right? Uh, that's really threatening to people like Ron DeSantis. Um, and in, in a ways, New College uh, and Hampshire, right, and places like that are, are kind of the, the, the scariest and this is kind of the scariest version of higher education for the right, because we're the places that show what an education that teaches students how to be free, right? How to think broadly, how to take on authority, which are all the things that are fundamentally incompatible with the sort of fascist direction that people like Ron DeSantis and now, you know, 10, 15 other states are pursuing. Right, so when we saw what was happening in New College, uh, we looked at this and said, "Here's a bunch of students who are having their education destroyed for political purposes in a campaign that's about undermining democracy." Not only right. that, but something that some Hampshire College students experienced when Hampshire was uh, threatened with financial problems—that is, they have a contract; they signed up. They were told, this is like a bait and switch. Yeah. They were told, this is the kind of education you're signing up for. And then there's this major shift in it, which is leaving them, what am I doing here, right? Right. They've gotten, they, there's, there's, the thing they came for is no longer going to exist. So the students at, the students at New College, you know, I, great admiration for them. They've organized. They're protesting. They're trying to turn this back. Uh, I'm... I'm skeptical that they're going to be able to do this because New College is, in fact, a state college. It is subject to the governor's whims, right? Uh, but we wanted to support their, their, their ability to protest and try to save New College while also giving them some sense of security and, and a place where they can continue the education that they went to New College to pursue. Um, so we reached out to those students and asked them if, it would, if they would appreciate and if it would help them if we gave them the opportunity to transfer to Hampshire College uh, with no barriers, right? If you're a student at a new college in good standing and you want to come to Hampshire next semester, you just got to tell us you want to do it. And to make it possible, we also agreed that we would match their current tuition cost at New College. Uh, New College as a state college for someone in Florida is much less expensive than a private institution like Hampshire. And so it, didn't, it wouldn't make any sense to say, well, you can come to Hampshire and pursue this amazing education you thought you were going to get at New College, but you can't afford to do it, right? And so part of our, our, our obligation and our sense of, you know, what can we do as good allies in this fight 
uh, is to make it possible for those students to not have to have a financial consequence for having to leave New College. What did you, Hampshire President Ed Wingenbeck, what had to happen at Hampshire in order to effectuate this offer? Uh, well, at Hampshire, we just had to commit to doing it, right? I mean, it's one of, this is one of, the, one, of the, uh, one of the great things about doing good work is that sometimes it's really simple, right? You can look at a problem and you can see that you have the opportunity to make a difference uh, and that while it you know, may cost us a little bit in terms of you know, these are students who might pay a little bit more to come to Hampshire if they'd applied directly, uh, it doesn't cost us a whole lot. Uh, and it's more important, it brings us a huge benefit in living our values. Do these students bring something special to Hampshire? In, I mean, I, I, that really is my question. I think so. I mean, I think there's really there's a couple of things that are coming here. One, you have students who know why they want to pursue an education, right? Hampshire students are like that. New college students are like that, right? These are people who have sought out a specific way to explore the world that matters, right? And they have this amazing uh, sense of purpose and ambition uh, and desire to make the world better. That's why they went to New College. And if they want to pursue that at Hampshire, that helps, helps us immensely because the more students we get like that, the better off Hampshire and higher education will be. This is, this is Dan. I'm, I'm curious to know, maybe this is too early to ask, but have students reached out to Hampshire? And uh, what has been the, the conversation uh, so far about them potentially uh, coming to Hampshire College? Yes. Uh, we've had... Something like 60 inquiries, people phone calls, emails, contact with our admissions office. We've had, uh, at this point, I think eight students who've gone ahead and filled out the, the transfer form. They don't have to apply, right? They just have to tell us they want to come. Uh, so I think we're at eight students who've already done that. We have a student right now who transferred at the beginning of the semester from New College who kind of saw what was coming and, you know, uh, decided to, to on, on their own to come to Hampshire. Uh, so we're getting... We're seeing a lot of interest there. Uh, I've also talked to some students there, and I've seen some reports of students who are, they, they are hopeful that they can stay at New College, but are really grateful that they know they have a place to go if they can't. Um, and so that's, that's a really important part of that. I don't wanna, we don't wanna undermine the, the struggle that those students and the faculty and the staff at New College are engaged in to try to resist this takeover. I, uh, President Wingenbach, I was looking at your website and uh, I'm looking at Welcome to Hampshire College. I see that there is a transfer form, is a mm -hmm. hot link to a transfer form, New College of Florida transfer form. How complicated is the process if a student wants to avail themselves of the offer? Uh, it's pretty straightforward, right? You tell us you're, you're, a, you're at New College, you want to come to Hampshire starting next semester. Um, you'll need to have a, have a transcript sent right, so that we can confirm that you're a new, a new college student. That's not a problem. Uh, and we've asked people also to share with us their, uh, their financial aid letter so that we can then build a financial aid package at Hampshire that matches their costs at New College. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I really want to applaud you. I want to thank you and, and all of your colleagues at Hampshire College. I think when, once again, when we first met, you were talking about your job being to help people fulfill their dreams. Yeah. I get goosebumps when I hear that. And um, 
And I just want to applaud you. This is these students have been sold a bill of goods. They were told that they were enrolling in a certain kind of college, and it is becoming something different. And Hampshire is there to make sure that they get to fulfill their dreams. And I think there's also this is part of a larger commitment, right? I mean, this is what we at Hampshire can do uh, in what is a becoming an existential struggle to preserve democratic education, right, and the value of higher education. I think every school and institution that cares about the values of higher education and democratic citizenship and the liberal arts needs to be thinking about what they can do, right? And there's a lot that can be done. We've got to stand up. Presidents of colleges and universities, faculty, students, have got to stand up against what's happening in places like Florida and Texas and Oklahoma because they've told us what they're going to do, right? This is how... This is, how, this is how fascism operates, right? They say what they're going to do, then they do it. And if you don't stand up, they do the next thing, and then they do the next thing, right? So this is a real fight, and so far, only one side seems to be really engaging in it. Mm, well put. I, I think taking their words seriously is really important. I'm not about to compare anyone to Hitler. It's a bad analogy, but I would point out that People said during World War II, how could we know that Hitler would do this? How could we possibly have known this? And the answer is because he wrote it in a book called Mein Kampf and told right. you exactly what he was going to do. Right. Yeah, and when you pass laws that say you cannot talk about your gender identity in public schools, and when you pass laws that say you cannot value diversity and inclusion and you pass laws that forbid people from talking about the history of racial injustice and oppression and oppression in our society because it might make people in power feel bad right? and when you try to take over colleges that are trying to to help people think freely and intentionally shut that down with your model being you know these kind of propaganda places that's just the start well, we are talking with President Ed Wingenbach. We're going to turn our attention to our local uh, institution of democratic education, Hampshire College, and ask about, uh, let's take a pulse of Hampshire College these days. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants. Smell that bread, the baguettes, that New York rye. It's euphoria, bread euphoria, bakery and cafe. 
Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of Yupik flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Hello, this is Chandra Richardson, Senior Vice President and Operations Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank. When you switch to banking locally at GSB, you're choosing a bank that has been serving the needs of local residents, businesses, and communities for more than 150 years. We offer a whole host of services and benefits without the fees you get at a big bank. You'll love GSB's free checking with free online banking and free GSB mobile app, which lets you deposit checks from your mobile device. Plus, GSB Online Banking and the mobile app come with the Credit Center, which includes credit scores and credit reports, all for free. And the mobile app also lets you control your GSB debit card remotely from your mobile device. You can open your account online or at any of our offices. Switch to free and local at GSB today and find out how great banking locally can be. Greenfield Savings Bank. GreenfieldSavings.com. Member FDIC, member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Hampshire College President uh, Ed Wingenback. So, Mr. President, um, how are enrollments, how are admissions at uh, our beloved Hampshire College? Things are looking really promising. Uh, I know this fall we had a 74% increase in new students, entering students. Uh, and this spring our applications are up another 10%. Uh, our deposits, uh, that is students who've already committed to coming and we're well in advance of that deadline yet, are running ahead of where they were prior to 2019. Wow, that's uh, great. So we expect another large jump uh, going into next year, which puts us right on the trajectory we need to be on uh, to get back eventually to full enrollment over the next several years. Uh, what's more exciting about that is that the students who are who came last fall and are applying now are just really extraordinary individuals. Uh, and the range of their interests and the range of diversity, um, both racial diversity, ethnic diversity, economic diversity, neurodiversity, right? It's, a, it's kind of a remarkable place uh, to see, to see that kind of, you know, a, a, a college where every student has the space to define themselves uh, in a way that isn't constrained. Uh, and where they feel supported. So one thing, we just had a big a, a admitted student day last week. We had 100 people on campus, 100 students on campus. And you could see them looking at each other and going, ah, I see people who express themselves like I do. I see the people who are going to support me in my own individual journey. 
Uh, and you can see them sort of relaxing and finding Hampshire as a home. And I, I love that we had that opportunity. So uh, we only have about a minute and a half to talk about this. <laughs> it's an unfair question. But with such a diverse group, what do you do in terms of curriculum? Right. So first of all, students at Hampshire define their own course of study. Right. They always have done that. We'll continue to do that. But we surround that by a collective commitment to design courses that engage with the really fundamental urgent challenges that our students care most about. Uh, so we have faculty in all disciplines and all, field, all fields designing courses around several questions, including uh, how do we respond to our responsibilities in the face of a changing climate, right? How do we understand truth in a post-truth era, something that you all were talking about in the first half of the show? Uh, how do we dismantle and disrupt white supremacy, right? These are the sort of core questions that the liberal arts are about. Uh, and instead of putting those at the side, we put those at the center of what we teach and how we learn so that students, as they're designing their own course of study, are constantly encountering faculty and mentors who are trying to help them understand how to take their education out into the world and make it a better place. It is just inspirational. I wish we had more time, but we don't. He is President Ed Wingenbach of our beloved Hampshire College, a jewel of an institution here in the Valley. And I want to thank you for what you're doing by offering those Florida students who've had the rug pulled out from under them a, a wonderful option. Meanwhile, thank you all for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember to walk the walk. This thank is you. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at GrowFoodNorthampton.com and WRSIHD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 11.